Hi, and welcome to the Bluff Church Podcast. Each week we bring you the Sunday message from the Bluff Church in Poplar Bluff, Missouri. If you like our podcast, we'd appreciate it if you take a moment and leave a review on your favorite listening platforms on iTunes or Google Play. Your review helps other listeners find our podcast. For more information about the Bluff, we invite you to visit our website at thebluff.church or our social media channels on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Just search for the Bluff Church. If you live in the Poplar Bluff area, we invite you to come be a part of the Bluff on any Sunday at 1027 a.m. in the ballroom of the Holiday Inn. Now here's this week's message. Good morning. morning. For those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Mason Powell. I am the teaching co-pastor here at the Bluff. And if you are a guest here this morning, we are honored and thrilled that you are here this morning. And we do this thing where at the beginning of every message, before we get into the text, we take a moment and we recognize those in this church who invest their time and their energy and their service here. Because what church is about is not the goober who's preaching on the stage. It involves all of us because everyone matters in this. And so this morning, we want to give recognition to a group that in many churches goes unnoticed. Like they're the secret superstars that make everything happen on Sunday morning, and that's the media team. So let's give a round of applause for our media team. For all those of you who serve on the media team, thank you so much for what you do. So when I was uh, graduating from high school, I moved out of my parents' house, and I, I moved into a, an apartment with me and two other guys, an apartment that was like, you know, only a one-room little place, and so we're all kind of sleeping stacked on top of each other. But I really enjoyed it because I got to get out of my parents' house, and it was wonderful because I could stay up late goofing off with the guys and playing video games or, or going to like Taco Bell runs at like one or two in the morning. Like it was a fantastic time. But we also lived fairly close to my parents. So if I ever wanted to go home because I just needed some my personal space or if I just needed to do some laundry or, or we ran out of money from Taco Bell so I need to go raid their fridge, like they were close by and it was a wonderful thing. Well, these perks kind of came with a, a price. And so every time my parents left on a trip or something like that, I was oftentimes asked to come home and, and house sit for the weekend because um, they had four dogs and someone needed to take care of those. And, and oftentimes my sister was gone as well. And I can remember in one instance uh, this being a bad thing. But I, I was always very excited to do these things because I'm sitting here thinking, okay, I have no money. I have to do laundry. I have to eat. And so I'll, I'll gladly take the opportunity to go and do this. Plus they have free Wi-Fi. But I remember one instance where it, it kind of went really bad because I remember it was the very first night and it's about 3 o'clock in the morning, and I hear someone break into the house. 
And, and I was a little bit nervous. And so I'm sitting here kind of quietly trying to listen as like panic is flooding in my ears. And I can hear this intruder rummaging around in the dark. And I'm sitting there thinking, I got to do something. And so I, I got out of bed and I, I got my dad's gun. And I, I get out of the room and I'm heading towards the hallway trying to find this person. And I hear that they go into my sister's bedroom. And, and I'm sitting there thinking, all right. I've seen enough crime TV shows and spy movies. I know what I need to do here. So I got to like the edge of the door and I was prepared to like kick it down and just start shooting blindly. Because that's what you're supposed to do in that situation, right? Like I know all the police officers in here are just shaking their head. No, like that was a horrible thing. You should have called the cops. But I was, let's be honest, I was a millennial who was in college. And so that meant I knew everything about everything, right? Yeah, so I'm pretty sure I've got this handled, okay? So I'm right outside the door, and I've got the gun, and I'm ready to go, and I'm, I'm getting pumped up. Like, there's a little part of me that was actually getting really excited for what was about to happen. And so I raise up my foot to kick down the door, and suddenly a toilet flushes. Now, I'm, I've never robbed a house, but I'm pretty sure the, the protocol is you don't use the bathroom at the house where you're robbing. Um, <laughs> At least that's just me. I don't know. Um, and, and so I, I kind of like thought about it. And I'm like, this is, this is not right. And so I, I quietly reached over and knocked on the door and said as politely as I could, hello, do you need any help in there? <laughs> <laughs> and I heard the groggiest, vilest, most sleep-deprived reply I've ever heard and it came from my sister who came like a day early back from her marching band trip. Needless to say, I thank God every day for working plumbing. <laughs> because if my sister hadn't, I would have shot her on the toilet at 3 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> my sister and I are pretty close. and We weren't always close. Her high school teenage years, when I was pretty sure she was possessed by an alien who was sent here to ruin our lives... Um, during that time frame, we weren't the best of siblings, but since then, things have gone a lot better. Now, I tell you that story because if I had actually shot my sister, even during those horrible years, I would have still have felt guilty over it. Like, yeah, I know our relationship wasn't perfect, but I still would have had a hard time forgiving myself for that, which is a good thing, okay? If you, it's a good thing that I would have felt guilty about shooting my sister in that situation, Okay. <laughs> But I tell you this because there are many things in this life which I do struggle even still to forgive myself for that I have done. Like I struggle sometimes to forgive myself for the things I've done with my hands or the things I've seen or the places I've gone or the things I've heard or the things I've said. Like I even struggle to sometimes forgive myself for the things I did before having a relationship with Jesus as if I should have been representing Jesus and being a better person before I ever got to know God. Like, as silly as that sounds. And maybe you're the same way. Maybe there are things in your life that you struggle to forgive yourself for. Or you think that there's no way that anyone could ever forgive you for what you've done. And in many ways, it's rightfully deserved. I mean, we're all sinners. We've all sinned against God and the glory of God. And that sin deserves punishment. So it's hard to look at ourselves and think, how could anybody forgive us if they knew what we've done when we can't even forgive ourselves sometimes. It's this tension that brings us now to John chapter 19 this morning. We've been taking this long journey through the gospel of John where we've gotten to see Jesus do some remarkable things. He is a man of love. 
He's a man of healing. He is a man of compassion. And yet the world did not respond in a grateful way towards him. So he came to love, and the response he got was people hated him. He came to be a king, and the response he got was people treated him like a slave. He came to rule, and people denied him. And finally, when they could no longer have enough of him, they have plotted on how to kill him. And last week, we read about that trial of the very people which God came to love and to save how they rejected him because they didn't want anything to do with him. And so he's been mocked. He's been persecuted. He's been beaten. And they finally figured out how they were going to get rid of this Jesus guy who is causing them so much problems. And they decide it's a death upon a cross. And so our story picks up in chapter 19, right where we left off last week, where Jesus has had this punishment thrown upon him because he is tried with treason against Rome and for blasphemy, for claiming to be the son of God, of being God in the flesh among them. And so they've decided, let's kill this God. Let's kill this man. Which brings us now to chapter 19. Verse 16, which reads, So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out to bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Now, they might have taken Jesus to the the sight of his death, but you got to understand that Jesus is not being dragged here against his will. Just as he was in control of his own arrest and trial, Jesus is even in control of his own death because he has talked about this since the very beginning, that this is something that God has always had in mind for Jesus, that he was going to die. And so Jesus goes into this willingly. In fact, it could even be argued that he kind of planted the idea in their minds before anyone ever started talking about, let's crucify this guy. Jesus kept talking about it, saying he's going to be lifted up above the people and he's going to be humiliated and God was going to be glorified through it. Like he has been talking about this for quite a while. So this isn't like catching anyone off guard. This isn't catching Jesus off guard. He has intentionally allowed this to happen because he intends to be the sacrifice for our sins. Now, we're oftentimes very confused by crucifixion in our world and age because we don't have it anymore, which is a good thing. So it's something that the Gospels and the New Testament writers, they just merely gloss over very quickly. They say Jesus was crucified, but what exactly does that mean? Well, you have to understand that when Rome ruled, their control and their empire was kind of ruled on two bases. One of them was that they had the strongest military, that they had the strongest empire of the soldiers. They were unbeatable in battle. So if a situation arose and a Roman soldier came in, you knew the problem was going to be solved. It was going to be bloody, but it was going to be solved. That was their first pier of how they had their power. The second one was a preventive measure. And it was the cross where they ruled by fear. Because crucifixion was a very common practice that the Romans did. And it struck so much fear in the people that no one wanted to be crucified. It was humiliating. It was agonizing. And here's why. 
the moment where the, the pronouncement is made, saying this person is going to be crucified. From that moment, a large beam is strapped upon their pack, and they have to walk through the city where they will be mocked, spat upon, and beaten as they go up the hill. And when they get there, they are then laid down upon the ground upon another post, and they drive long nails through the wrists, and then they put the feet together, they fold them, and they twist your ankles at an odd angle, and they drive another one right through your feet. And then they lift you up above the crowd and they set you where you're just a few feet above everybody so everyone can see you and everyone can still get in your face and spit in your face and insult you. And in addition to that, your clothes are ripped off and so you're laying exposed before everyone and ashamed. But how you die from crucifixion is not from physical torture or beatings or blood loss. It's from the act of just struggling to breathe. You see, from this angle that you're, you're put at, in order for the victim to breathe, they would have to physically push up. And during the nails that are driven in them, they would have to physically push up in order to draw in a single breath. And when that breath is done, they would sag back down and struggle again to breathe. And this would go on for hours. Sometimes, some records show as late as 36 hours of this intense agony or eventually there comes a point where you don't have strength anymore and you can't lift yourself up and your lungs fill with moisture and you, you die pretty much like you would die drowning or your lungs fill up with water. And Jesus willingly chose this. Like God, before he created the world, had the mentality to think this will be how I will display my love and glory across the universe. Is allowing Jesus to die such a horrible and agonizing death for sinners who don't deserve it. But this torture as he's on the cross extends beyond just the physical agony. It's humiliating. See, read with me the, the next verse. We jump down to verse 23. It says, When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom, and so they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fill the scripture which says, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So here is God in the flesh, and he is upon a cross suffering for our sins, and those who are present are ignoring it, and they're, they're playing games for his clothing. Like for them, this is just common. They experience this all the time. So let's, let's play some games. Let's try to get something out of this torture other than just physical pleasure or watching Jesus suffer. Let's see if we can get something out of this. But even in this moment, this was something that was talked about centuries before. In the, the gospel or the, the book of the Psalms, God talked about this very event before crucifixion ever came into human history. God still talked about this moment. So this is not something that God has caught off guard. He has intended for this to happen. He has planned for this. He has led everything to this exact point so that Christ can suffer and die for sinners who don't deserve it. And when this is settled, Verse 28 now. We come now finally to, to read. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. 
A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and, and held it to his mouth. The torture just seems to continue because they're basically throwing vinegar, which if you ever had just vinegar, it's awful. That's basically what they're making him drink in this moment. But in some ways, this kind of ends the physical torture so that the real battle can begin as we read now, verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The work is finished. It is complete. The final words which he shouts upon the cross is, it is finished. Because this is not a cry of outrage. This is not a cry of despair that Jesus is making. This is a cry of victory because this was the moment where the separation between God and man for our sins was finished. This is the moment where darkness is finished. This is the moment where evil is finished. This is the moment where we are separated from each other because of our sins to each other is finished. This is the moment where God can once again dwell amongst us and we can survive in his midst and so that he can have a family. It is all finished now. All the separation is finished. This is what it's been leading up to for centuries this is a cry of victory. This is not a cry of defeat. Because Jesus has defeated our defeats. Remember, we talked weeks ago about how he was going forward already with a mentality that he was going forward to a victory, not to be defeated. And this is the moment. Because his final words were, were not, oh, I'm, I wish this didn't happen. Or God save me. No, he shouted out, it is finished. And by this God is made faithful to promises he made long ago. You see, God talked about this, as I said, not just in Psalms, but he talked about this in the book of Genesis, not just to Adam, but also to Abraham when he talked about he was going to save the world. And this is the moment. Because not only is God Savior here, but he's also made faithful to his promises. Because God has been working his way towards this, this very end. So that evil and darkness and suffering can end because it's going to end in him. Because he who knew no sin was going to become sin for us who don't deserve it. So that in his death it might be killed as well. So that God could have his family. And so here's why I want you to walk away remembering from this. If you walk away forgetting everything else, please, please try to remember this. These final words that Jesus said in his finish is something that he was talking about here. He's saying, if Jesus declared your sins finished, then they are finished indeed. If Jesus declared my sins finished, they are finished indeed. And so oftentimes we don't believe that. So oftentimes we would rather live in the misery of our own sin, of just constantly thinking about that beyond anything else. Because it's common. And so we'll rather live in the state of feeling defeated rather than the state of the grace which God has given us. It's amazing finding Christians who that's all they can think about is, oh, I'm the worst. Oh, I mess up all the time. It's like, don't you realize the grace that God has given you? When he said that this thing that you keep dragging up, the thing that you keep holding on to, he has declared it finished. So don't go back to it. And some of you are going to go, I know this week, you're going to think that exact same thing. 
where you're going to forget about the grace of Jesus and you're going to sit there and you're going to try to live in some look at me or, or boo-hoo or anything like that. You're going to live looking at your sin more than you're going to live looking at the grace of Jesus. So please, let's put that back up. Say this with me, okay? Because this is important. I want you to say this to yourself, okay? If Jesus declares my sin finished, it is finished indeed. And you might have a hard time believing that. You might have plenty of excuses that you can come up with in your mind and think that your little situation or your little sin is the exception to it. Like you're the only one with skeletons in their closets. And so you think there's no way that God can possibly forgive me or love me if I can't even do it for myself. And maybe you think this way because others have told you that. Maybe you think this way because others have made you feel this way. That your sin is just too great for God. More often times you tell it to yourself. Maybe it's when you look at your hands. And you think, how could God possibly love me if he, if he knows what I've done with my hands? Of how I've stolen and taken and beaten and killed and hurt others with my hands. How could God possibly love me when he knows what I've done with my hands? But don't you see? The God who carved out the world with his hands allowed them to drive nails through his wrists so that blood would pour out. My friends, it is finished. Your sins are forgiven. Maybe it comes when you look at your feet and all you can think when you see your fear are these are the things that take you to those, those closets of skeletons time and time again. They are the things that take you places that you do not want to go. And you know that they're just filled with sin. And so you look at your feet and you're like, how could God possibly love me when he knows what my feet have done? Don't you see? They took the God who mapped out the world and they laid his feet together and they drove a long nail through them so blood would pour out. Your sins are forgiven. Maybe you think, when you look in the mirror, you're thinking, there's no way God could possibly love me because you know what's all in your head. You know what, what you see at night after night when you think no one knows. You know what you say to others all the time that is nothing but hate. You know how you think that you can't seem to think any good thoughts. And so you think there's no way that God can possibly love me with all the things I do. But don't you see? They took the God who had the idea of the universe. They forced a crown of thorns upon his head. With thorns so long that they would have pierced into his skull and blood came out. And before that ever happened, they would have yanked his beard out with their bare hands. It is finished. Your sins are forgiven. Maybe you think there's no way God can possibly love me if he knows my heart. Because you know your heart is cold. You know your heart loves to sin. And you feel shame to say that. You feel shame that you actually enjoy going back to those secret little sins. Or you look around and you find, I can't love people. I'm always miserable. Or I hate everybody. And I'm always angry and things like that. And you know that's what's in your heart. And you think there's no way that God could possibly love me if he knows what's in my heart. 
Don't you see? And to the God of the universe who, who gave you that heart, who designed that heart, and they drove a spear in his side through his ribs right into his heart where blood and water poured out. It is finished. Your sins are forgiven. Maybe it comes from when you look at your past and you think there's no way that God can love me because no one has ever loved me because of what you've gone through in your life. You've been neglected and abandoned by horrible parents. You have a past of broken relationships and marriages and you think there's no way I have too much history in my background. There's no way that anyone could ever love me because no one has ever shown me love. But don't you see? Before he was ever nailed to the cross, they took a whip called a cat of nine tails whip that's filled with glass shards and bones. And they flogged him to the point where his spine was exposed. And then they made him carry this heavy beam upon his back. And marched him through a city that he loved where people who less than a week ago were praising him as a king and now they are slapping him, spitting at him, calling him the worst insults. is finished. Your sins are forgiven. See, there's nothing in, in your life, no excuse you can come up with that says that God does not love you, that his blood, that he sacrificed on the cross for you does not cover. You who believe in Jesus, and this only happens because you have the ability and the opportunity to be able to believe in Jesus. When you recognize you desperately need him. That when you recognize that you are a sinner who needs to be right with God and with others. And it is until you recognize that that hope of salvation is only found in Jesus. When you confess with your lips that you believe that Jesus is God. And that Jesus has paid for your punishment upon the cross. That is the only point where this becomes true for you. But you know what's so great about this? Our king is not just a king who is interested in saving you. He is interested in redeeming you back to your original purpose. And so those hands are not just washed clean, but are remade so that you can use them now to help others, to build and to work, all for the glory of God and his kingdom. Those feet that you once looked at and you thought it only takes you to horrible places and back to those, those places that you do not want to be, they're not only washed clean, but they can now be used by God to take you and the, his kingdom and his gospel to the ends of the earth for his glory. That mind of yours, that head of yours that you feel is like just filled with nothing but vices and sins, it's not only washed clean, but you can use your, your words and your thoughts and your the things you watch and the things you listen to and all of it. You can use all of it to proclaim what Christ has done. That heart of yours is not only washed clean, but is made so that you can love like Jesus has loved you. That weight you carry is not only removed. It's put on Christ's shoulders. And what he gives in exchange is rest and peace in him and the knowledge of who he is. 
and how much he loves us. See, if Jesus declares my sin finished, it is finished indeed. Oh, how he loves us. That is our king. He's not just passionate about saving us from our sins, but he's passionate about reusing us and re-equipping us and transforming us into a new creation that is meant to go out there and proclaim to others that there is this hope in Jesus who can wash away our sins. And this is a free gift offered to everybody. Like, there's no limitations. There's no restrictions. There's no, oh, it's only for my people and people who act like me and talk like me. This is a free gift offered to everybody. And in it, we are defined more by what we have in common in Christ than what separates us so that we have it more in common with another believer who's in Afghanistan, Iran, or North Korea who might speak a different language than us and have a different political views than us, but we have more in common with them in Christ than someone who even lives in our own neighborhood who speaks the same language as us and has the same political views, but they don't know Jesus. Because now Christ is the most defining part of who we are. This is something that we get the luxury of living in because God loves everybody. So there's, there's no limitations. This transcends race. This transcends culture. This transcends ethical boundaries. This transcends all things because Christ has become all and he has chosen to love all of sinners, not just the ones we want, but he has come to die for all, not just the ones we like. So God loves everybody. God loves the sinner. God loves the anxious. God loves the bullied. God loves the lonely. God loves the depressed. God loves the single parents. God loves even those people at your family gathering who you're hoping to avoid this week. God loves you. But if we're brave enough to say that, that God loves the whole world, then, then we have to recognize that whole world is bigger than us and it might think differently than us and act differently than us. So, so God also loves the liar. God also loves the moron. God also loves the thief. God also loves the adulterer. God also loves that woman who committed abortion. God also loves the killer. God also loves the LGBTQ community. God also loves the Muslim. God also loves the Buddhist. God also loves the Hindu. God loves the agnostic. God loves the atheist. God loves those who would spit in your face if you told them that Jesus loves them. God loves everyone. And he has sent Jesus to die for everyone. So that if anyone ever desires to be part of the family of God, to have their sins forgiven, have that opportunity. Not just those who look like us. Not just those who live in the same community. Not just those who act like us or that we like to hang out with. God loved everyone. He died for everyone. And invites everyone to come to know him, to be forgiven of their sins, regardless of what that might be. Because God loves everyone. And here at the bluff, that's what we believe. We believe that, that God is madly in love with everybody, even the people who are sometimes difficult to love in life. 
But we believe that if Jesus declares our sins are finished, that we, we believe that. That they, we believe that they're finished indeed. And so we believe that this holy and righteous God has done the unthinkable and forgiving us. And so we're trying to learn what it means to forgive ourselves as well. We believe in what the promises that God gives. More than anything else, we believe that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that three days later he rose again. And that's something that we have the joy of talking about next week. But this week, I want you to dwell on those final words of Jesus, of it is finished. Because if he says that your, fin- your sins are finished, they are finished indeed, only on the basis of you having a relationship with him, by you surrendering to him, of you having the courage to say, I need God in my life. And that's why we're celebrating communion again this morning, as you can see, because this was a special ceremony which Christ gave us that symbolizes how his body was broken for us as we break bread, of how his blood was poured out for us as we take of the juice. Because this is the sacrifice which God did in order to pay for our sins upon the cross so that we can have a relationship once again with him. And so we get the joy of once again taking part in it this morning. Now I recognize some of you, maybe you don't have a relationship with Jesus. Or maybe you're a visitor and this is an uncomfortable thing. You're like, I don't know what we're about to do, so let me give you some instructions. Here in a little bit, the band's going to be back up here, and they're going to sing, and they're going to lead us in worship. And it is during that time when you are good and ready, when you've had a moment to chew over Christ declaring it is finished as his final words over us. And how that means your sins are finished. After you've had time to chew on that, when you're ready, come up to one of the stations. Take a little piece of bread, dip it in the juice, and you can either eat it there at that moment or return to your seat and eat it in a little bit if you like. But we invite everyone to come and be a part of this. And I recognize you might be a guest and you're like, I don't know if I want to be part of this. That's okay. There's no pressure. But we want you to know you're always welcome to take part in this because this is a very special ceremony where we remember Christ loved us. Us who are unlovable. And he allowed himself to go through such agonizing torture and be killed for us because he loves us that much. And so we take this to remind ourselves of that and remember it. That even when we mess up in the past and we're going to mess up even in the future, we can remember Christ already won. And he's already declared that finish and is moving us towards a better life with him in it, with us getting closer to him. So let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much. We cannot thank you enough for what you've done. Even when we might struggle to forgive ourselves, you who are holy and righteous and good are able to, to look at us still want to die for us. When we can't forgive ourselves, you still choose to forgive us when we choose to forget or when we choose to believe in you. And so thank you for that, Father. Thank you that we get to have communion and meditate on that and remind ourselves 
That if you have declared our sins finished, they are finished indeed. And so I thank you for that, Father. It's in your name I pray. Amen.